Well, we return to our study in the book of Habakkuk this morning, and if you are one of our friends from the United Kingdom, you'll call it Habakkuk, but since I'm not from the United Kingdom, I can't sound cool when I say it like Alistair Begg, so I'm just going to call it Habakkuk. That's the old American way to say it. And last week, we started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we really just looked at the first verse of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1. So this morning, we come to chapter 1 and verse 2, and allow me to begin reading in verse 2, and I'll read down through verse 11, as I've selected this portion of Scripture to be what our focus will be this morning. Follow along as I read God's Word. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, God says. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. And at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Now what we're reading here this morning is Habakkuk's account of his dialogue with God. And as we noted last week, Habakkuk was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel, a nation known as Judah. When we think about Israel, we oftentimes just call the nation itself Israel. But if you know your history well, you'll know that it was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called, in shorthand, Israel. But the southern kingdom, whose capital city happened to be Jerusalem, was then referred to as Judah. And Habakkuk the prophet is standing before God on behalf of the people of God, and he is crying out in great complaint against God. He is questioning God. He is crying out in great lamentation, because as we saw last time, there was injustice and unrighteousness throughout the land. Habakkuk is a man of his time. And he was living through the great revival and reformation that had occurred through King Josiah, who started a spiritual reform throughout the land, not only in the worship of Judah, but also in the social reforms of Judah. And he had turned a land that was marked with unrighteousness and injustice into a land that was marked with justice and marked with righteousness. But his son, King Jehoiakim, had come to the throne. You remember we mentioned last week that Josiah died in the battle at Megiddo fighting the Egyptians who were trying to become the world's superpower at that time. And so his son Jehoiakim comes to the throne and Jehoiakim is a man who is corrupt through and through on the inside and on the outside and a kingdom that Josiah had worked so hard to be marked by righteousness and justice was now a kingdom marked by unrighteousness and injustice just as it had before. The international picture wasn't much better than the national picture. Uh, Judah was really surrounded by all of these enemies that are trying to lay conquest to the world. You have Egypt, which is to um, Judah's west. You have Assyria, which is further to her northeast. And these two kingdoms, Assyria and Egypt, have coalesced together in an alliance to fight against Babylon. And all of these countries and kingdoms are vying for the political superdominance of the day. And here is this little country, Judah, with now a corrupt leadership, surrounded by the enemies of 
of God. And Habakkuk is crying out to God, how long, O Lord, will we see all the evil and all the wickedness in the world play out? Now I need to mention to you that if you find the history of all of this boring, I'm sorry for you for two reasons. The first reason is that the Bible is absolutely stocked full of history, and you simply cannot understand the Bible without understanding the history of the Bible. And I'm sorry for you, secondly, if you're bored by history, because if you're not aware of the historical context in which the theology of Scripture takes place and the stories of Scripture take place, then that is going to result in a perverted and twisted interpretation of Scripture itself. History is absolutely vital. Our understanding of history is absolutely vital to understanding the theology of the Bible and then to understanding how the Bible can be applied. And in all of our efforts to explain Bible verses to other people that can't understand it as we wax eloquently on that, if we neglect the historical sections of Scripture and the historical context of Scripture, then we're really not doing other people any service except interpreting the Bible wrongly. And so if you haven't heard The introduction to this series, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because it's full of the historical context of the book of Habakkuk, which will really help you understand the message. But really, the central thrust of the passage before us this morning is found in that first statement in verse 2 where Habakkuk complains to the Lord, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? This statement is precipitated by the bleak circumstances of the people of Judah who find themselves in dire straits. And so in verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord, asking him how long all the the social immorality is, is going to occur before his eyes, asking how long the law is going to be paralyzed and ignored by God's people. And it is somewhat surprising to us As conservative Christians, as we read verses 2 through 4, this doesn't seem like something a man of God would say to God in prayer. It doesn't sound like a super spiritual thing to question God and to complain against God. And if we're honest, while we're at it this morning, let's go ahead and admit that God's response in verses 5 through 11 does not appear at face value to be the sort of comforting response and solution that a holy, righteous, and good God would give. And yet we have it right here in Scripture, which might be one of the reasons that I've never heard a sermon series through the book of Habakkuk. Some preachers might be afraid to preach it. But we need to be honest about what Scripture says. And it might surprise you to understand that not only is Habakkuk's attitude of lamentation acceptable, but let me go so far as to say that it is not only acceptable, but that it is expected by God. God expects His people to wrestle and to to try to grasp what God is doing in the world, what God is doing in our lives. Listen, God is big enough to handle your complaints. God is big enough to handle the problems of the world. And Habakkuk understands this is a relationship. This is a two-way street. And as a prophet of God, I am representing the people of God, and I will honestly go before God and make my complaint to try to understand what God is doing. Habakkuk is essentially crying out to God. Now it was Charles Spurgeon who said, tears are the diamonds of heaven. And that is a certain way of expressing the fact that when we cry out to God, there is a certain relief of the stress that we experience where we begin to then experience the richness of God's sovereignty and His justice and His goodness. And Habakkuk understands that. You may think that the prophets aren't people that are to cry. But Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Habakkuk, was nicknamed the weeping prophet. These prophets of God were passionately concerned about the glory of God's name. Yes, they were suffering, but their complaints against God were rooted in a desire, a holy and righteous desire, to defend God's character. And that's why they come before God. Football season is almost upon us. And so you know that the sermon illustrations are inevitably going to lead to some sense to the football realm. Lou Holtz 
uh, tells the story when he was coaching in his second season as head coach of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. His team experienced a humiliating loss. I believe it was to Texas A&M in the Cotton Bowl. And as he's walking back to the locker room, he sees that his players are just not dejected. They don't seem upset by this loss at all, except for one player, a man by the name of Chris Zorick, who sat in front of his locker weeping deep, gut-heaving sobs. And Lou Holtz looked at this young man and decided at that moment that next year's team would be composed of players who loved football as much as Zorick. And so the next season, this young man went from being a substitute to a starter to being a team captain, and the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, as much as I hate to say this, won the national championship. Chris Zorick had won the spot on the starting team, listen, because he cared enough to cry. Some things are worth crying over, and Habakkuk, as a man of God, understands that God's character, God's glory is going to be questioned by the people of God. And so as a man of God, as a leader of God, as a prophet of God, on behalf of the righteous remnant, he goes before God in prayer and asks for answers on behalf of the people of God. He is a prophet, so he's not only giving a word of God to the people of God, but he is also bringing a word of the people to God. And I want you to see that the problem of the prophet is really the problem of the people. And that's still true today. The problem that Habakkuk brings before a holy and righteous God is the same exact problem that we face today. And here it is in a nutshell. How can God be powerful and good and at the same time allow so much evil and wrong in the world? Let me repeat it to you again. How can God be powerful and good and yet allow so much evil and so much wrong in the world? Now, in the first place, we must seek to answer that question by affirming that this world is not the way God originally created it. Sin has had a domino effect of evil all around us. So we need to begin answering the question by affirming that. But in the second place, we also need to affirm that such a question about how there can be so much evil and wrong in this world is a question that really is unique to Christians. For instance, the atheist does not bother to ask this question for he does not even believe in God, right? He sees suffering as nothing more than happenstance and so he never asks how evil and wrong can be in the world. He accepts it. He embraces it. Nothing matters in the world. There is no God who cares. You're suffering. Deal with it. Make the best of life. People in other religions, quite frankly, don't ask this question either. How can evil and wrong be in the world? Because quite frankly, their gods aren't seen as particularly that powerful on the one hand, and on the other hand, they're not seen as particularly that good. So the question never arises. This question on how God can allow evil and wrong in the world is a question that is unique to Christians, and it is a question that all Christians must ask if they're alive. It's a problem that all Christians face. We know. We know that God is holy, just, and righteous. And you see, as Habakkuk brings this problem before God, his problem is not rooted in what he doesn't know. His problem is rooted in what he knows. God, how can you be holy and good and righteous and allow all the evil and wrong that there is in the world? And so the Christian in the midst of suffering asks this same question. And in one sense, I want you to understand this morning that we'll never understand all of the mysteries of God. Habakkuk not only questions God in verses 2 through 4, but after God gives an answer in verses 5 through 11, he asks more questions in verses 12 through 17. In other words, God's answer wasn't good enough to Habakkuk. It raised more questions. And yet when God finally responds in chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, and we looked at it last week, the righteous shall live by faith. That is ultimately God's response to every single one of our questions. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, the question this morning is not whether it's right or wrong to question God, but rather, why do you question God? What are your motives? And how do you question God? What are your methods? If you question Him 
Because as a Christian, you believe with all of your heart that He is all-powerful and all-good, then you are questioning rightly. But if you question Him, on the one hand, because you don't think He has a right to do what He does, or on the other hand, you doubt that He has the sovereignty to do away with the evil that is present in the world, then you are in a dangerous place because you are not living by faith. And the Bible says, the righteous shall live by faith. But let's just take away the spiritual pride this morning and admit that at some point in our lives we all question God. We know that He's all-powerful. We know that He is sovereign. We know that He is good. And what the passage this morning teaches us, and really the book of Habakkuk through and through, is that because we know these things, we accept them by faith, and we understand that everything God is doing, He's ultimately doing for His glory and for our good. Habakkuk knows this, but he needs reminded of it. We know this, but we too need reminded of this. Someone once said that those who complain about the problem of evil also have the problem of defining the existence of the good. And I think that is true. Habakkuk needs to have his spiritual sight refocused because he's beginning to view things like an, a non-Christian. Things as only bleak and only pessimistic. And what God needs to do to him is the same thing God needs to do to us and he needs to remind us that God is still sovereign. And that though there is evil and wrong in the world, there is coming a day in which God will punish all evil doers. We need to be patient and wait with faith. That's really what this passage teaches us. We learn from this passage that though we cannot understand how a good and powerful God can permit evil, God will eventually punish evildoers. And this truth unfolds to us in two scenes. First, we see in verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk's reverent perplexity. And then second, we see in verses 5 through 11, God's righteous prophecy. You could also divide it up. Verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk's prayer. And verses 5 through 11, God's response. But we'll call it Habakkuk's reverent perplexity. And we'll call it God's righteous prophecy. Notice with me, first of all, in verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk's reverent perplexity. This is his first series of questions. He'll ask another series of questions in verses 12 through 17, which we'll look at next week. But notice with me in your Bibles, in verse 2, he is essentially asking God how long he has to wait for God's help against the violence. And then notice verse 3, he wants to know why he has to witness six things. And he lists them here, depending on your translation. The first thing, iniquity. Secondly, wrongful suffering. Third, destruction. Fourth, violence. Fifth, strife. And sixth, conflict that marked Judah. And then in verse 4, these six things led to four major problems. Notice them. First of all, the law was paralyzed. Secondly, justice never went forth or prevailed. Third, the wicked surrounded the righteous. And because of these three, the end result, the end of verse 4, was that justice was perverted. That's another way of saying there was no justice. Now notice in the beginning of verse 2 how Habakkuk approaches God. I call this a reverent perplexity because he is approaching God. Howbeit, it's a lamentation. He's still approaching God with reverence. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? He addresses God, notice, as Yahweh. He doesn't address Him as the man upstairs. He doesn't address Him as merely just God. He is addressing Him as Yahweh. This is the covenant God. Habakkuk is recognizing in his very address to God that he is in a relationship with God and that this Yahweh who is in covenant relationship has promised certain blessings and benefits to fall on God's people. He is coming before God in this great cry of lamentation with faith that Yahweh is indeed his God and is the God of the people. Habakkuk's problem, as I said before, was not in what he didn't know about Yahweh, but what he did know about Yahweh. And what he knew about Yahweh was that he was holy and righteous. And so the question becomes, why are you making me see all the evil and the wrong in the world and experiencing it? He couldn't square how Yahweh's character matched up with what was going on in the world. He was familiar with Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. 
which tells us that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He was also familiar with what verse 7 says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Habakkuk saying here in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? I know you're this sort of God who upholds justice, and yet I am praying to you. And the idea here is, how long shall I cry to you. Habakkuk had been praying. The people of God had been praying. And he says, you will not hear. It seems as if there is inactivity on the part of God. And he is perplexed by this. He is confused. He's complaining to God because of the seeming inactivity of God. Josiah is dead. The social reforms are over. Injustice and righteousness have come back in under Jehoiakim, and Habakkuk and the people of God are praying to God to rain down his punishment of the wicked people of Judah. And God's not doing anything. So Habakkuk asks God in verse 3, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? I love this language. Why do you make me see iniquity? This is a reverent and righteous complaint. Habakkuk doesn't even want to see or to look at all the ungodly behavior that's going on, all the manifestations of sin in society. You see, this is a man of God. He loves what God loves. He hates what God hates. And he's asking, why would a holy God who has called His people to be holy allow our eyes to see unholy manifestations of sin? He is absolutely and totally perplexed. So he says in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? He's saying, you're making me look at sin, and you, Yahweh, are also looking at it, and you're doing nothing. And then he says, destruction, he says, uh, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. I think it's best to see, there, there are six things listed here in verse 3, and I think it's best to see them as coming in pairs to us. So that the, the iniquity that's mentioned there in verse 3, and the wrong that is mentioned are two sides of the same coin. The iniquity of the offender causes the wrong that is suffered. For example, if someone commits the sin of murder, then the one killed and their family are the ones who have been wronged. Habakkuk's saying, you allow iniquity to happen, which causes wrong to be suffered by those who are the victims. Why are you tolerating this? And he goes on to say, destruction and violence are before me. Destruction is violence. Violence is destruction. And then he says... There is strife and contention. That's the third pair. In other words, he's really revealing this domino effect. The result of iniquity has a domino effect. It causes others to suffer wrong. Violence causes destruction. And what is the result of all of this people? The result is that God's people are striving and contending with one another. This is a society that has gone mad. People are taking one another to court all the time fighting over all sorts of things. It's a society where the unrighteous suppress the righteous in court. That's really the scene that Habakkuk is laying out before God in his lamentation. It's the scene of a courtroom where the guilty party brings forth false witness after false witness before the judge until the judge finally renders a false verdict and the guilty go away unpunished and the innocent suffer. That's how Habakkuk felt. That's how the righteous remnant felt. God, we supported the spiritual and social reforms of Josiah. We don't support the wickedness of Jehoiakim. We are a small remnant, and yet the unrighteous who rule over us are oppressing us and suppressing us in the courts. The problem of the prophet is the problem of the people. Habakkuk is saying, God, if you are just, then why do you delay in punishing the wicked? God, if you are just, then why do the unrighteous prosper and the righteous suffer? God, if you are pure and holy, then why do you allow all that you do in the world, all that you do among the people of God, all that you do in my own life? It's a lamentation. And go back to that word in verse 2, violence. He says, we cry to you, violence and you will not save. That word violence is used five times in this tiny book of Habakkuk. It is the same Hebrew word, listen to this, that Noah used to describe the society of his day. And God ended up destroying the world with the flood. 
If we have trouble sympathizing with Habakkuk's complaint to God, then we have simply become numb to the violence that sin causes. All sin is violence because it violates God's holy law. It is a violation against God's image and it hurts others who have been created in God's image. Sin in and of itself is an act of violence. Now you say, was there physical violence going on during Habakkuk's day? Absolutely, but the violence that Habakkuk speaks of is more broad than that. He's lamenting the violence that all sin causes. The violence of God's character. The violence of those created in the image of God. And he's looking around and he's seeing a nation that is on a downward spiral. Let me just mention a few things about King Jehoiakim. He was a deep sinner against God violently. And as the leaders go, so do the people go. Jehoiakim, this wicked king, persecuted Habakkuk's contemporary, the prophet Jeremiah. You know what he did to him? He cut up his scroll and he threw it in a fire and then he threatened Jeremiah's life as well as his scribe, Barak. King Jehoiakim sent assassins to kill the prophet Uriah. King Jehoiakim killed those who disagreed with him. Jeremiah 22 says just because they disagreed with them, he killed them. And in the midst of all of this violent physical bloodshed was the violent violations of God's holy and pure law. And Habakkuk is perplexed. How long, O Lord, are you going to tolerate all of this? Justice had been abandoned in Judah. God's prophets were being persecuted. The righteous were suffering under His administration that is of King Jehoiakim, the prophets and the priesthood were corrupted by adultery and all sorts of other abuses of authority. Jeremiah 23 reminds us of this. And here are these beleaguered prophets of God. Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Daniel, Zephaniah. They have a minority of the people of God, a righteous remnant following them. The masses of people are following the false prophets who are telling the people exactly what they want to hear. And this man of God is representing this righteous remnant who find themselves in a culture of moral and spiritual decay. Does that not sound like today? Identically. This is why history is so important. Now notice verse 4. He says the law is paralyzed. That's another way of saying the law, because of all of this, has become ineffective. I mean, it's just powerless. And when God's law is not upheld, listen to this, in a nation, when God's law is not upheld, notice the rest of verse 4, justice never goes forth. And when that happens, no law means no justice. And when you had no justice, the first people in a nation to feel the effects of that are the people of God. Notice the rest of the verse, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. That means the wicked gang up on the righteous. They call evil good. They call good evil. Justice becomes perverted because it's inverted. The law is not followed. And where it is followed, it is twisted and perverted and abused to appease the wealthy and the powerful and the elites. This is a Bacchic society. The courts don't work. Justice doesn't prevail. God's law is ignored. It's a ruined society. And Habakkuk is perplexed because God is allowing it to be ruined and the righteous are suffering because of it. That sounds exactly like today. Just read the newspaper. Just watch the news. Habakkuk, the righteous prophet, has a righteous remnant and this is a very bad situation. They have no recourse for action. They can't use God's law because the unrighteous have a monopoly on it and the leadership is corrupt and the courts are corrupt. The righteous are unwilling to take things into their own hands and seek revenge, which would be the methods of the unrighteous. So what is the result? The result is the righteous suffer. They suffer. The unrighteous get away with it. And where is God in all of this? Where is God? That's what Habakkuk's asking. Where was the fierce God of wrath who caused God's people to quake with the bolts of lightning when He gave the law at Mount Sinai? Where was the manifestation of His justice now? And why wasn't He punishing the wicked? It's a song of lamentation. 
And it's also what we read in Psalm 13, is it not? David says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God! Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. One of the most practical things that we draw from this lamentation is that this is a natural thing for a person of God to do. God, we know You're good. God, we know You're powerful. God, we know You're holy. And we know that You could stop the iniquity and the decadence and the immorality that surrounds us anytime You want, yet You're taking so long to do it. God, why do You allow all that You allow globally? And you look around the world, and justice is perverted everywhere. Man does what is right in his own eyes. People are making and sending off nuclear weapons. There's terrorism everywhere. God, why do You allow what You allow globally? God, why do You allow what You allow nationally? Our country, let us not forget, was founded in some sense on, Christian, on a Christian foundation. And you walk around the world today, you wouldn't even know that. God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing globally? God, what are you doing nationally? God, what are you doing ecclesiastically? God, what are you doing in the church? I mean, there's wicked people even in the church. I'll go so far as to say some of the most wicked people in society are in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they are false sheep, but they are there. And there are false shepherds. God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing in my personal life? I'm suffering physically. I'm suffering financially. I'm suffering vocationally. I'm broke. I don't like my job. I'm sick. And it seems like the unrighteous get away with everything and enjoy life, and the righteous suffer. They suffer. Oh Lord, how long? But what I want you to understand this morning is that this passage is teaching us that though we cannot understand how a good and powerful God can permit evil in this world, we know that He's still sovereign. Amen? And we know that He has not changed. He is immutable. He is still good. He is still holy. He is still righteous. And here's what else you need to know. Someday, God's going to have the final word. And He's going to punish all evildoers. And He's going to cast Satan into the everlasting lake of fire forever. And so we move from Habakkuk's reverent perplexity, verses 2-4, through to God's righteous prophecy, verses 5-11. through We move from Habakkuk's reverent perplexity to God's righteous prophecy. Verses 5-11, through and I, I love this, God... He, he makes no introductions. I mean, he just launches into a prophecy that is a response to Habakkuk's questions. Habakkuk's complaining prayer results in God responding by saying, listen, son, things are going to go from bad to worse. He begins by giving a declaration of the Babylonians' motives, followed by a description of the Babylonians' military. Now, when we get to the end of all of this, and it won't take long to go through these verses, when we get to the end of all of this, we're going to see how this applies directly to us in our day. But we've got to understand the historical context. You've got to understand the weight of what Habakkuk and the people of God were feeling. This is a real lamentation. And so God's Righteous prophecy begins with the declaration of the Babylonians' motives. Notice verses 5 and 6. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. If Habakkuk thought God was asleep on the job, I think he's well aware of the fact that he's not gone anywhere. And to prove it, God's going to send the Babylonians, called here the Chaldeans, as an instrument of judgment on Judah's wickedness. The same wickedness that he described, Habakkuk did, in verses 2-4. through And this reminds us, let me just say, that just when we think we know how God should deal with world events, God does something different. Why? Because His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And if Habakkuk in verse 2 was asking, Oh Lord, how long? I guarantee you, when he heard verses 5 and 6, he's saying, You've got to be kidding me. We have been praying for deliverance, and you're going to judge us? And this is not, I'm going to judge the wicked people of Judah, and I'm going to 
I'm going to save the remnant from suffering. No, this is, I'm bringing my hell against Judah. That's what God is saying. You know, it's, it's interesting. God uses similar language that Habakkuk uses. Notice in verse 5, he says, Look among the nations and see. What did Habakkuk say in verse 3? He says, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? It's as if God is saying, you're asking me why you have to look at something. I'm telling you to look at something. I want you to look and see this vision, and I want you to carefully listen, because you wouldn't believe it if a man told you. Notice he says, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. If told by a mere man, he probably wouldn't believe it, that God's going to judge his people by a more wicked people. That's exactly what happens. This answer is coming from a sovereign God. And so he says in verse 6, as we read it, that the Chaldeans are going to come and they're going to seize Judah. And now just a word here about the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the dominant ethnic race in the Babylonian Empire. And because they were the dominant ethnic race, when people referred to the Babylonians, they just called them the Chaldeans. So the Chaldeans are synonymous with the Babylonians. A wicked people that God is going to use as an instrument of judgment. I won't belabor the point, but you're familiar with King Nebuchadnezzar II, who ruled from 605 to 562 B.C. And he ruled this nation, as verse 6 says, a bitter and hasty nation. That means they cared nothing about diplomacy. And they didn't conquer kingdoms with words. They conquered kingdoms with swords. Not with diplomacy, but with destruction. Not with compromise, but with conquering and much bloodshed. So that verse 6 literally says they marched through the breadth of the earth. And as we saw last time, as I explained the history, that's exactly what they were doing. Egypt and Assyria joined together to fight Babylon, and Babylon wiped them out. And now they're laying conquest to everyone around them, and it's only a matter of time before they come upon Judah. These are, these are battle-hardened warriors. And they're coming after Judah. Is an act of God's sovereign punishment for Judah's sins. This is surely not what the prophet and the people expected. And we look around our world today and we ask the same question. But let me just remind you something that Martin Luther said. He said, the devil, the devil is God's devil. God is meticulously sovereign over every speck of dirt in this world, every atom, every molecule. God is meticulously sovereign, and He is orchestrating all of His events in this world to culminate in a situation that will bring Him the utmost glory. And He's reminding Habakkuk here, you want sin punished, I'm going to punish it. And so after giving a declaration of the Babylonian motives, God gives a description of the Babylonians' military in verses 7 through 11. And just to show how just God is in punishing evil, God reveals to Habakkuk five fierce descriptions of their military might. Listen, if you ever want to know what God thinks of sin, if you're ever doubting the justice of God, if you're ever doubting the delay of God's punishment, if you ever sit there and doubt God, why are you allowing this? Why aren't you acting? Just turn to Habakkuk chapter 1 and the fierceness that you see in the Babylonian military, that's exactly how God views sin. Notice these five descriptions. First he says, verse 7, they're lawless. In an act of divine irony, God is going to use these lawless Babylonians to punish the lawless people of Judah. Notice verse 7. He says, They are dreaded and fearsome, God does. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. This simply means they need to be feared because their justice comes from themselves. That's another way of saying they're a law unto themselves. There is no sense of justice. They follow their own rules. They follow their own appetites. Now, isn't this a twist of irony? Do you think God always gets revenge? I think so. Judah was ignoring God's laws for their own laws, and now God says, you're going to do that. I'm going to send the Babylonians who also ignore my law, and they're more wicked than you, and they're going to punish you by invading your city and taking you captive. They were lawless. Notice the second description, verse 8. God says that they're ruthless God compares their savage ways to wild animals. He says their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the evening wolves. That means that their cavalry, they had horses, was going to rush headlong to attack their enemy as fast as leopards run. 
And they would come upon them like wolves in the evening that were hungry and hadn't eaten all day and were hunting for food. They would conquer nations so quickly that it would be impossible to defend against them. So he says, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. I mean, they were like eagles that were focused on their prey and they swiftly swooped down and took their prey before the prey even noticed it. The only person I've ever seen and ever heard of to rescue an animal before getting taken away by an eagle was my own wife, who actually rescued my my in-law's dog before an eagle swooped down and got the dog. But usually that doesn't happen. She's fast. (laughs) But the eagle was on the prey before it could even know it. Indeed, you remember last time we spoke about the history The Israelites had read the newspaper clippings of King Nebuchadnezzar defeating the Egyptian army. He attacked their capital city, Carchemish, and chased the army 150 miles away to obliterate them. There was no mercy. They were ruthless, and that's why the third description is that they were merciless. Notice verse 9. God says, They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. In other words, they're merciless. Those who were not killed were put in marching lines like like sand on a seashore. The lines were so long. The people they didn't kill, they just took captive as prisoners into slavery. No mercy. They came for violence. Again, that word violence is used. It was used back in verse 2. I mentioned it's used five times in this little book. Again, do you see the irony? Judah is marked by violence and God's going to send the violent Babylonians to destroy them. God always gets the last word, beloved. Don't ever think that He's not just. Notice the fourth description. They're fearless. Verse 10. God says, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. I mean, instead of trembling before other kings, they mocked them. They made fun of other kingdoms and governments and rulers and boldly laid siege to their cities. That's what that language is, that they laugh at every fortress and they pile up earth and take, take it. I, I love military history. And what's being described here is building a ramp of dirt that goes all the way up to the city walls. They would boldly do this with arrows flying down on them, building a ramp of dirt, and then placing a war machine on it with four to six wheels um, and pushing it to make a breach in the wall so all the soldiers could go over the wall like tiny little ants and just plunder the city. Battle-hardened warriors. They were fearless. But they weren't just lawless and ruthless and merciless and fearless. Notice verse 11. Worst of all, they were godless. They were godless. God says, Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. They were worshipers of no God but themselves. They worshiped their own strength. They were like a man on steroids looking at himself in a mirror, lifting weights, drugged, reckless, worshipers of their own strength, of their own might, completely and totally godless, wicked. Now that's going to raise another series of questions we'll see next week. God, why are you sending more wicked people than even Judah to punish Judah's sin? This couldn't be the answer Habakkuk was looking for, could it? They're praying for deliverance, and God says, I'm going to give you judgment. But we must ask what this means. Habakkuk's reverent perplexity in verses 2 through 4 is met with God's righteous prophecy of judgment on Judah. We'll see more about this prophecy next week, but what do we learn from all of this as we just sort of tie all of this together? Let me give you just a few little points and we'll be done. Number one, know this morning that God is fully aware of global wickedness and He will judge it in His time. God is fully aware of global wickedness. He'll judge it in His time. All the evil in this world does not escape the all-wise, all-knowing God of heaven and earth. And the divine judge will punish all evildoers. Eventually, justice will prevail. And we see glimpses of this throughout history, don't we? You see the Nazi Germany being toppled over, other regimes being toppled over. 
Even in Habakkuk's day, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on earth. And in pride, he's walking around saying, look at everything I've done. And what does God do? God strikes him and makes him a crazy man. God judges him. Even in his own day. So that Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4.37 that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Listen, God always has the final word. Evil will never ultimately prevail. God is always just. When you hear about nuclear weapons and you hear about terrorism, and you hear about social and immoral decadence all around, just know God is aware of everything in the world. Secondly, God is fully aware of national wickedness. Now catch this. And He calls the righteous to be separate. God is fully aware of national wickedness and He calls the righteous to be separate. Notice back again in verse 3, Habakkuk says, God, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you you look idly at wrong? God, you're looking at wrong. You're making me see all of this sin around me. It makes us ask ourselves the question, is that our attitude? Or do we enjoy this world a little bit too much? Habakkuk was a holy man. He didn't enjoy it. He couldn't stand seeing what he saw. And it is true, you can't prevent seeing images that pop up on the computer or that come up during a commercial or or whatever, but you can prevent making a second or a third look. You can prevent your feet and your head and your eyes from going certain places. You can guard your heart from wickedness. Habakkuk didn't like to see the immorality that was around him. And I find that many people in the church today enjoy it way too much. And if we're honest, we'll confess that we all enjoy it too much to a certain degree. We allow ourselves to be entertained by the sins around us. That wasn't the righteous remnant. That wasn't Habakkuk. His prayer is not, God, I just want to be a successful American. Why are you allowing all this to happen? It's, God, why is my country so destroyed? Why don't you judge it? He was offended at what God was offended And that reminds us that God is fully aware of national wickedness and He calls the righteous to separate. You know, it is an historic fact that America was built to some degree on the recognition of a Creator God and His laws. In fact, the Founding Fathers said that a lawless land was the result of not recognizing a Creator God. So that when the Continental Congress asked Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams to create a national seal for our newly formed nation, you want to know what Franklin envisioned? This is what he said. I want our seal to have Moses standing on the shore and extending his hand over the sea, thereby causing the same to overwhelm Pharaoh, who is sitting in an open chariot, a crown on his head, a sword in his hand. And I want to see rays um, from the pillar of fire in the clouds reaching to Moses to express that he acts by command of God. And you know what he wanted the motto to be? Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. What was Jefferson's idea? Well, it included a depiction of the children of Israel in the wilderness being led by the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. All of that eventually didn't become our national seal. Not all the founding fathers were Christian, but here is one thing we need to recognize. Our nation has gone a long way from where it was before. And I'm not standing up here this morning and saying, well, we need to make our founding fathers proud. No, that's not at all what it is. We need to make our heavenly father understand that we want to live holy and we want our country to be holy. How does that happen? Well, it only happens when we're faithful to our covenant God. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world as the church. And that takes me to the third application. God is also fully aware of ecclesiastical wickedness that is in the church and He'll punish covenant breakers. Let's not forget, this is not merely the people of God, or excuse me, a nation. This is the people of God. This is Judah full of covenant breakers. They were people that identified as God's people. And I think it reminds us, God's judgment always begins with the household of God, doesn't it? We shirk His laws long enough. We're not the pure church that He's called us to be long enough. What does He say in Revelation 2 and 3? He'll remove the candlestick. We look around the church scene today and it's easy to get discouraged. And I'll confess that to you as a pastor. I can say, Lord... We're doing everything conceivably right that could be done right as a church. Why aren't you blessing us more? I look at churches down the road and they're doing conceivably everything wrong you could possibly imagine. And people flock. 
people flock. Well, just know, God's fully aware of our lot, just as He was fully aware of Habakkuk's lot. We're called to be faithful in the midst of unfaithfulness. We're called to hold up the truth even when no one else is following the truth. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that God's fully aware of global wickedness and He's going to judge it in His time. We learn that God is fully aware of national wickedness and He calls the righteous to be separate. We learn that God is fully aware of ecclesiastical wickedness and He'll punish covenant breakers. And finally, we learn that God is fully aware of personal wickedness and He allows evil in our lives to break us in repentance. Before we begin judging others, we must first judge ourselves. And I have no doubt that as Habakkuk makes this lamentation before God, and he speaks about the wickedness that is surrounding the culture that he lives in, I have no doubt that he was confessing his own sin to the Lord. He understood that he hadn't made it to perfection yet. And he understood, I think, when he comes to the end of this, because he knows the righteous will live by faith, He composes a hymn at the end of this in chapter 3. I think Habakkuk understands. Listen to me on this. God ordains all suffering, even the suffering of the righteous, to break us, to humble us, to cause us to repent, to conform us to the image of Christ, to make us more holy. And to the degree that our lamentation says, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I trust that what you're doing is right, even if that means suffering for me, I will bear it because there must be something you're teaching me. That marks our lamentation. If that marks our complaint, God embraces it. And you're on the road to embracing Him in faith. Remember, the the name Habakkuk means embrace. So Habakkuk is lamenting, not because of what he doesn't know about God, but because of what he knows about Him. He knows He's just. He knows He's powerful. He knows He's pure. And yet He says, God, how long? God gives His answer. We know this morning God's sovereign. He's never going to allow injustice to go on forever. We can rest in that this morning. Now next week we'll look at the other questions that Habakkuk raises in light of God's response. And we'll be encouraged there as well. Let us pray.